thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. High-performance military airplanes operate from the flight decks of ships at sea primarily in one of two ways. The first is known as stovel, or short takeoff, vertical landing. You might picture, say, Aviate B Harriers or the B model of the F-35 Lightning II. The other is conventional cats and traps, let's call it. Think hydraulic or steam-powered catapults and mechanical arresting gear. Although increasingly these days, you might find both are electromagnetically driven. Either way, these incredible contraptions launch aircraft like the FA-18 Super Hornet or the C model of the F-35 from 0 to 170 knots or more in just seconds, and later do the opposite to safely recover them. Each method has its challenges and certainly risks, as the recent F-35C crash aboard the USS Carl Vinson so graphically depicted. But which do you think is more difficult? Of course, if you ask a Harrier pilot, he or she will say Stovall operations, and a Super Hornet pilot will likely say cats and traps. The trick is to find a pilot who has done both, and that's not easy. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your host, Vincent Aiello, and I've not done both, but about a year ago, I did find just such a pilot. Paul Tremling was a Royal Navy Sea Harrier pilot who later flew FA-18 Super Hornets on exchange with the U.S. Navy, and I asked him which he found to be the most challenging. Paul joined us for a Patreon happy hour discussion in early 2021, where he not only ranked the difficulty of day and night Stovall and cat and trap operations, but he also identified some of the differences between the Royal and U.S. Navies, and he described his combat deployment to Afghanistan and Harriers, among other topics that came up. Our original plan was to round out UK month with a Warbird episode on the Spitfire, but unfortunately that did not work out, so instead we are repurposing this happy hour chat. Now a couple comments before we do. First, you'll hear me and Paul refer to Stovall operations by their former title, VSTAL, which stands for Vertical or Short Takeoff and Landings. And second, this is a more casual conversation than our normal episode interviews, and that's the whole point of our happy hours. Our Patreon supporters really enjoy this monthly perk. I trust you will too, so we'll see you again early next month for a return to our usual programming, but enjoy this discussion with Paul Tremling. Here we go. Well, how are you doing today, Paul? Yeah, very well. Thank you very much. Uh, Coming to you from a uh, slightly cold UK, but I guess that's what you expected, right? Well, it is winter time after all. So let's see, you reached out to me, has it been not a, quite a month, but forget how long it took us to uh, finally get together like this. Thanks. I stumbled across the blog and and I said to you in your email that in the past, I'd done a red flag with a couple of the folks you'd interviewed. And then I saw your bit with Magua talking about the AV8 and you guys were comparing V-Store deck ops with Cat and Trap deck ops. And I thought, well, I've done a bit of both of those. So maybe I should reach out and just say hello. Oh, that's pretty cool. You're one of, I would say, a few who have done both of those. But let's start at the beginning. How have you done V-Stall Ops? So I joined the Royal Navy. I went to university or college, as you guys would call it. And pretty much, Jello, I was inspired by the Falklands conflict, which I'm sure you've heard about. But the long and short of it is that set the touch paper light, and I always fancied it. Uh, so uh, leaving the end of college, I thought I'd give it a go. And, you know, we all have our bumps throughout flight school, etc. But hey, one day I ended up there on the Sea Harrier front line flying the Sea Harrier in the fleet era. 
Okay, so let's start with the basics. So you listened to Magua and us talk about the Harrier. Did I take too many liberties? Did I gloss over too many facts with the Sea Harrier? No, not at all. It was a great aeroplane. It had its shortcomings, as all aeroplanes do. But in the second version of it, the FA-2, it was still a Harrier 1. But we had a great radar up the front. Um, you guys were kind enough to sell us the AIM-120 Bravo. And between those two, then uh, and we probably got to where the fighter needed to be towards the end of its life. I just finished reading, and I probably should have looked it up because it's morning here. My brain's not fully kicked in. But Harrier 809, does that sound right? Yeah, it's great. What a great book and what I really like about it. The guys down in the Falklands have, uh, you know, a couple of books have come out of those and those give you a really good insight as to what the individual air crew were thinking, but they're very like soda straw as you would be when you're focused on that task. Harry 809, I think does a great job of sort of compiling all those stories that we suspected were out there, but we never really got to hear from the Falklands war itself. Yeah. Roland White, I had to look it up again. It's morning here, but I really enjoyed it. Great stories. And not only the Harrier, but the initiative of the Brits to hurry up and take a container ship and turn it into a makeshift <laughs> amphibious ship for Harriers to get down there and, and everything you guys did. So, all right. So how many hours did you end up with in the Harrier? In the Harrier 1, just shy of a 1,000 hours. And I was always just shy of something, uh, Jello, because I remember when I went across to do the, what you guys would call the RAG for the Harrier 2, I actually got my 1,000-hour patch on the RAG as a student because I was jumping, you know, and I was just short of 200 depth landings, etc. So uh, I guess somewhere in the sort of 1,600-hour type mark, I suppose. <laughs> you deployed as well to Afghanistan? That was in the Harrier 2. We never got to uh, go anywhere in the, in the Harrier 1. So big picture, what happened was that the Harrier 1, the Sea Harrier, went out of service. And rather than split up the Royal Air Force force that was operating the GR7, GR9 at the time, we uh, formed a joint force with them. So that Essentially, on the front line, on the waterfront, there were two Royal Air Force squadrons with a smattering of Navy guys in them and a Royal Navy squadron with a smattering of Royal Air Force guys with us. Okay. So you've had your vertical takeoffs and landings and short takeoffs and landings and all that. Even, I assume, the ski jump takeoffs because you guys have done that. In fact, that was one of the questions. I don't remember if it was on the Harrier or not. So have you ever done a Harrier takeoff from a not ski jump ship? Let's go with that one first. No. Looking at the U.S. Marine Corps guys, I think that's quite a brave thing to be doing. You know, the ski jump's one of those misunderstood parts of V-Stall flight, but essentially it gives you a uh, accelerating platform that isn't there, a bit more runway in the sky, if you will, so that the flat deck guys, they always look at it as they go off the end. <laughs> that little sink can't be that comfortable. Yeah. So as I recall, and again, I don't remember if it was Magla or somebody else, I believe the answer was, well, but we get more deck parking space. So I don't know. Does that answer smack true with you, do you think? I don't know. The ramp's only, what, 150 foot long. It's not that long at all. And actually, because it's obviously not a straight lining uh, gradient, otherwise that would give the nose wheel something that it probably couldn't digest. But you can park on the first bit of the ramp. It's not a great space saver, I don't suppose. But in aviation, we all come to know and love how we've been brought up, don't we? So that was our way and they've got their way and that they make it work. So uh, no that. doubt about it. Our troops actually sleep in the ramp, by the way. Really? Inside the ramp was a mess deck because it was so damn noisy. They always used to give it to our squadron maintainers. <laughs> well, maybe it's this, Paul. Maybe, well, let's see. What have we taken from the Brits? First off, we already left these guys a long time ago and had a little battle. And then we took, what, steam catapults, angled carrier uh, edges, so many things that maybe they said, all right, ramps is where we draw the line. 
<laughs> yeah, probably. So then how did you go from taking off on a Harrier on a ramp to, I assume you did some catapults and arresting gear? Yeah, so every cloud has its silver lining. And we got a, another bit of a kick in about 2010 when we got told that the Harriers were going out of service full stop to save money and defense cuts, which is still a decision I'm not entirely all balanced up with, Jello, I'll be frank with you. And I was sort of at the Squadron XO level at the time. The Royal Navy was looking ahead to how we were going to get back into the carrier game after a little bit of a holiday, which was going to be hard. You know, as soon as you start losing those skills, it's going to be hard work to get back on top of those things. So at the time, we were going to buy the F-35 Charlie model. That was the decision. And that meant that senior supervisors were going to need to learn how to cat and trap. And I got the lucky ticket to come out to uh, join you guys, go through Pensacola, just check that, you know what, drowning in American waters as easy as in UK water, that sort of thing. Four months at Meridian, uh, Dequal in the T-45, and then I went out to Lemoore to train on the Echo model, the, the Super Hornet, and joined the FA-25, the Fist of the Fleet. All right. When did you get to the Fisties? Because I'm guessing we just barely missed each other. I wasn't in the Fisties, but I was in Lemoore for a long time. I was out there end-to-end, and, and you know what? This is a bit disappointing, this story, because like I said, I'd left XO and was busy being promoted to commander. And so my tour was cut short. End to end, I did 11 through 13 out in uh, the US with your great Navy. Okay. Yeah, I was, uh, I left there in 09 after six or seven continuous years. And then I came back briefly in 13 to get recalled again on my way up to Fallon. So you came out and flew with a VFA. And first off, how are the differences between a Brit squadron and an American squadron. I have to think it's the same people, slightly different accents, but is it a lot different or is it pretty much the same? You know what, at the base level, and this will gladden your heart on a number of levels, it's of course exactly the same. I would go as far as to say, however, the FA-25 was probably the happiest squadron I've ever served on. And my wife and family were made more than welcome by everyone in VFA-25. And even the guys in Amore, I don't know if I'm allowed to name names, but I wrote a letter to the boss of the RAG before I went to Meridian, because you can only move your family across the Atlantic once, right? I wrote the boss of 122, who was a stroke of Wickoff at the time, to say, hey, I'm not even going to be on your books for a few months. I've got to go and do this T45 thing. Could you just at least give us one person to look after the family while I'm away and they're in a strange land? Stroke was awesome, had the family over for Thanksgiving when I wasn't there. He uh, gave us a point of contact in a super guy called Baby Huey, Scott Hullett. They were just fabulous, absolutely fabulous. And that continued right the way into VFA 25, made to feel more than welcome. And yeah, you know what? Everything's the same. The troops are the same. If you really want an eye opener, you go and sit with the ordnance guys. That's the same. All very, very germane. <laughs> no, that's good. And I would expect nothing less taking care of you. That's great. You know, as much as we like to kid each other when the chips are down, and especially when families are involved, I think that doesn't surprise me. I served briefly with Stroker up at Top Gun. He was just getting ready to leave when I got there, and I know he went on to do great things. He might be an admiral by now. I kind of lost track, but that's pretty cool. All right, so what did you do in your, you said a little over 11 months, but what did you do in that time at the Fists? It was a great, great time to be joining the squadron. We just got the Lot 33 jet, and the guys had actually come through 122 to collect the airplanes as I was finishing the course. So I knew them from the the ready room, et cetera. And also that was... uh, quite cool as well, Jello, because you know how things are with credibility bucket, et cetera. And if you're the one who can pipe up on the net and say, hey, guys, you can actually bit the navigational system. And there were quirks that 
I've gone through as a student that they might not be uh, familiar with going to the rhino from the legacy hornet. So I was able to sort of just use little things like that to sort of get a toehold in the squadron. But but genuinely, I had enough time for the boss to take me up and show me exactly how good he was at combat compared to me. And the answer was uh, better. Uh, <laughs> then I did three MVG trips and we went off to Red Flag, which was awesome to go to flag in those brand new aeroplanes um, to be basically using the uh, U.S. Navy tactics out the front of a F-22 backstop cap, that there was nothing that Nevada could throw at us that really troubled us, really. And that was awesome. That's a really, really good experience. Got to go to the boat for a couple of weeks here and there. Got, got out to the boat a couple of times. Uh, got as far west as Hawaii. Great times. Yeah, except our boats lack something your boats lack, don't they? Apart from ski jumps. <laughs> in the Navy, we had a little problem with uh, alcohol early in our history. And so it's been banned ever since. And that's a perk you guys have. Yeah, it is. And there was one night after night flying that we were all there at Midrats with a mountain of wings to get through. And, and one of the guys said, hey, bet you don't get Midrats on your boat. And get, no, but we do have something else that really helps <laughs> after night flying. That's right. All right. So, of course, I have to ask you, I mean, you carry a qual, as you said, in the T-45. And we'll gloss over that unless that's where the initial terror was, if any. And I think that was daytime only, I'm guessing. But yeah. compare now for me, that was the premise of our chat today is beast all versus cats and traps. So how different is it? As far as motor skills go, I've always ranked them. It might be counterintuitive, but easiest of the lot is a V-stop. It's a more sedate approach to the ship. There's a couple of things you have to get straight in your own head. In the Royal Navy, we were quite relaxed about being non-diversion, one approach only. So you only got one go and you only had enough fuel to land with that one approach. So that concentrated the mind. But as far as just getting back on board, I found that the most straightforward, I would say. And this one might surprise you. Next easiest is Captain Trap Night. I always found night flying quite relaxing. My logic here, Jello, is that for someone like me, when your meatball lineup, angle of attack, if they're the only three things you can see, it makes your life a little bit more simple, in my view. And because you've got it, it all suitcased at 12 miles coming in off the radial, then I found that quite a relaxing serial. Next up, I'd say was Cat and Trap Day, because I found the procedures more complex than at night, because you've only got that arc around the back uh, in the groove before you get on the ball itself. You've actually got to get yourself suitcased pretty damn quick. And then you've only got what, was it 18 seconds of disappointment? before? About 17 seconds if you do it right, yeah. yes. <laughs> and so I used to find the most challenging, the Stovall at night. I don't think that's necessarily true of the new aeroplanes, but the real struggle is that you're descending into the black beside the, the ship. You're trying to come to a hover in the darkness, not looking at the ship, only referencing your HUD and then translating across. I found that the hardest. And also at the back of your mind is the laws of physics don't change at night. You're still single approach. You're still non-diversion. So that's how I would grade it. Well, that is not what I expected, but I'm certainly not going to tell you you're wrong. You must have ice water in your veins, Paul, because you had the benefit of going to the carrier for the first time a little bit more senior with some experience under you. But I think in the U.S., the night traps are universally hated. Now, I'll see if I can flesh out of this something to save my pride because that was for me always the worst but did you go out when uh, there was an overcast and getting below it is pretty dark and did you have any swells to deal with on your uh, dfa 25 experience well actually i embarrassed myself once with one of my passes where there was a swell by day because i bit off on that visual illusion of the ship rising up towards you which makes you feel very very high 
I took a lot of power off. Obviously, Paddles wasn't particularly happy about that and quite rightly told me afterwards that I'd done the wrong thing and I should have stayed on the ball, which goes back to my previous point. Maybe at night I wouldn't have seen it. But, but yeah, there was a, a certainly very low viz off San Diego. You know how it gets out there. It gets quite bloopy at night sometimes. Yeah, oh yeah. It's kind of diabolical that that's where they do most of their carrier qualification is somewhere where there's a perfectly 1200 foot overcast most of the year. You got to get underneath that. But like I said, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I find that pretty intriguing, actually. What did you think about the catapult shots? I would say the way I've always described it is it's like a fairground ride, but it's right on the edge of some sort of trial by fire and pleasure. Isn't it awesome? But one more not, and it probably wouldn't be. Yeah, that's probably a good way to put it. To your earlier point, whereas in the daytime, you have this somewhat convoluted, if until you get good at it, approach pattern to land. And you also have a quick clearing turn, which depending on what you're doing, if you don't do it fast enough, the boss will holler at you uh, to do it. But at night, you know, just straight ahead, clean up and make sure your gyro is properly caged. So I'm surprised not having any background in the Harrier, and I don't remember if this came up in our interview on that episode, but just enough fuel for one landing, day or night? What we would do by day, we would what's called the slot, where you break over the ship. We would slot on arrival at the ship, just as anyone else would, so so break just beyond the superstructure. The minimum that we were allowed there was 1,200 pounds of gas, which would give you enough to get round into the groove, into the hover, and land on with min landing allowance or whatever. And there would be a um, point in most missions, obviously peacetime, where you would tell command, hey, I'm five minutes to diversion. And then they would just say, yep, recover. That was that, as it were. When we got onto the Harrier 2, the GR9, some of them had a bigger engine, which would allow you to keep gas for longer in the sortie. But at night, you were still tended to be, we called it the cake stand, pushing from the 15-mile point. And at some point between there and your decision point, you'd probably go non-diversion. Wow, that's amazing. Would the ship that you land on in a Harrier be as affected by the winds as the carrier would be? Because that was kind of the Achilles heel is while we're launching and recovering aircraft, we're kind of set based on the winds. And that, of course, makes all the folks up on the bridge unhappy because they're predictable to any potential threats. Is the wind and the heading of the amphib as big a deal in a Harrier? It is for us, or was for us rather, particularly for the launch. It was one of those sort of myths that Harrier Ops could, you know, sail out the wind, didn't have to stick with the convoy, all the other stuff. But I never saw it, to be honest. I, we always tried to make wind over the deck, and it made the recovery a lot easier if there was a bit more wind over the deck as well. That makes sense, certainly. I guess the ski jump, it's claimed, allows you, apart from a little bit of comfort, as you stated earlier, but you can only carry so much fuel, but more weapons. Is that supposed to be the benefit, just getting back to the ski jump real quick? Yeah, it allows you to reduce your deck run. What it does do, that everything's a trade, your nose wheel will compress as you go up the ramp and there will be a limit to that. So actually you end up with a maximum deck run as well as a minimum. And in really, really hot weather, uh, you know, Persian Gulf, that sort of area, then you would find that the minimum and the maximum would eventually coalesce. You never had a weight chit or whatever like you guys did, but you would know that the guys in the yellow jackets probably had, what, five, maybe 10 feet to play with between the minimum and the maximum run for you to get off. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. 
Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime, and my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone, available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. That's interesting. So in other words, based on environmentals in a Harrier, you would have to what start at a different spot on the deck compared to yeah. in your Super Hornet. It wasn't even up to you, but I guess neither was the deck spotting, but it was a little bit dialing in the uh, steam pressure. Yeah, exactly that. Just as you'd know on your kneeboard going out, you'd go, this is no kidding. The fuel weight I can come back with and hover, just like a max trap. Essentially, you're always playing to a weight for one reason or another, aren't you? You would also have on your kneeboard going, you need to have at least 300 feet in front of you when they spot you or you want to start bleating to Flyco that something's wrong. Okay, that makes sense. All right, so we've talked about the similarities and differences of taking off and landing these aircraft, Paul. How about fighting them? Probably the best way of looking at this is a building block version in that the Sea Harry was very good at what it did with the Blue Vixen radar, which we would use the AIM-120. We would use it in track while scan. For quite a while, none of the other European nations knew what we were up to, so that worked really well for us on exercises, etc. We didn't have to spike anyone to host the weapon, and we could carry AIM-9 mic fit as well. We didn't have that many weapon stations, so if you wanted to carry four AMRAM, then that was you done. We then changed roles completely to go to the Harrier II, which was primarily air-to-surface, hence we did a lot of close air support, and that's what took us to Afghanistan. So if you roll both of the, all that experience into uh, one platform and one incredible capability, you've got something like the Super Hornet, which is why it was probably fabulous for someone like myself to go back through the brag because you know what, all the young guys, yeah, of course, they're going to be uh, a little bit sharper than you. But if you've got everything in the experience piggy bank, then uh, you might be able to hold your own. <laughs> all right. So did you ever, while you flew in the Harrier fight uh, Hornet or Super Hornet, and then while you're flying the Super Hornet, do you ever have a chance to fight a Harrier? Fought against a Hornet whilst I was flying in the Sea Harrier, yes. Uh, we had some great fights. It must have been the summer of about 2002. Um, there was one of your carriers to the west of Sicily. We were to the east. We had a, a, some really good mix-ups. I remember fighting with the Hornets there. And it was interesting because we both seemed to want to fight slow, which was quite interesting. And merging with F-14s, etc., was pretty cool. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, that's one of those aircraft that has so much, of course, notoriety that, that you have to kind of check the block if you did get a chance. And I did as well, for sure. All right. What about like BFM or ACM 1v1, whatever you might want to call it? Did you find one to be either easier or harder than the other? Or I mean, the principles are generally the same. And I'm guessing you flew with the helmet as well when you were at uh, the FIS? Yeah, exactly that. I think that the Harrier would simply not match the control of the Super Hornet. But in the Super Hornet, as you recall, you have to be pretty aggressive with the controls to like reset the wings, for example. Um, that was a new habit pattern for me. The Harrier really favored someone who flew it very smoothly towards the edge of its envelope and really mothered your parameters, whereas it seemed to me that you had to bully the Super Hornet into doing what you wanted. Okay. All right, Paul. So now I'm going to put you on the spot and don't worry, none of anyone's countrymen are listening. So the phone rings, middle of the night. Hey, we need you to come back and uh, fight in an airplane. We're going to give you all the training you need. This is the direction you're going to go. And you have a choice. Which airplane? I've said it, and I 
cannot, other than the Gen 5 stuff, which I'm a little bit out of touch on, imagine going to war in anything other than the Super Hornet. I just don't know why you'd want to. Maybe the um, F-15E is similar in its standing as far as I'm concerned, but golly. And I know the jets got better since I left, but if you could go to war in a lot 33 or 34 Super Hornet, that'd be fabulous. And I don't remember where it started. Did they have the AESA APG-79? Yeah, we had the AESA, decoy, jammer, AIM-9X, you name it. It's like fabulous. cheating. You had all that stuff. Right? <laughs> yeah. Helmet, yeah. high off-board sight, yeah, yeah, AIM-9X. Yeah. yeah. When I was doing the uh, patch wearing course for the Sea Harrier, I came across to Fallon to visit the Strike Warfare Center and Top Gun. And there was this uh, F-14 driver in the bar who was saying how, you know, the kids are going to get lazy with all these toys. And they're still going to be better than us. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> When was that? That would be in about 2003-ish. See, darn it, just missed you again. I was on the Top Gun staff from 2000 to 2002. And by 2003, I was down in Lemoore. I bet we'd probably cross paths somewhere, Paul. I feel like I know you because we've had similar experiences other than the Harrier for me. But okay, so another question I have to ask you is True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's the top gun for Harriers. How close did they get it? You know what? I've only seen it. <laughs> I'm trying to recall. The only thing I seem to recall is him saying it was easy and me thinking, well, I didn't find it particularly easy, to be honest. Particularly that burst, the stall bit he does. We used to talk about when we were training Jello, getting disco leg in that when you realized that there was nothing left to check and you'd done your checklist and now all that was left was apply full power and go up in the air. That was quite nervous. So other than saying it was easy, then he's probably about right. And I seem to remember someone being on the back of the Harrier. I assume they got a hearing test afterwards. Oh, they were all over the Harrier. You had a girl up on the front. You had a terrorist guy back on the wing and everywhere else. I love that movie, of course. It's fun. If I can refresh your memory, you've got the Harriers that are out doing maneuvers, fully armed. Gee, you know, Mm. of course, flying around QS, why wouldn't you be? And then they launch a pair of uh, Maverick at a bridge. And so I always thought that was kind of interesting, at least in the Hornet. And I don't know if you had a chance to do any in the Super Hornet, but you could really only launch one at a time. But they fire the two. And then the gun, and um, let's see, was that the same for the Sea Harrier? Was the gun, was it a pod on the bottom? Yeah, we had two um, Aiden cannons, which was actually a uh, German Second World War design, bolted onto the belly stations in the Sea Harrier that denied you two missile slots. So to be honest, post-Falklands, et cetera, then when we got onto the AIM-120, we didn't use to carry them. Oh, wow. But it was a 25 millimeter, if I remember correctly. Is that right? 30 mil in the sea. All right. And then let's see. So yeah, then they land because there's the nuclear blast. Arnold, to your point, gets in and just does a perfect, well, not perfect. He runs over a police car, but he gets in and (laughs) takes off after, I think his buddy says seven years since he's flown it. So I remember Magua saying it was a little bit like trying to balance a bowling ball on the tip of a nail or something. Is is hovering the thing uh, pretty busy? It is. And the interesting observation from Magua, because he grew up on the Harrier too, was that the Harrier 2 was a lot more stable than the Harrier 1. And he thought that was a good thing, which obviously it is. But I used to find it quite painful because in the Harrier 1, it's a bit more nimble. You can get onto a spot quicker. You can fly it a bit better. A bit like uh, the Super Hornet in BFM, I suppose. With the Harrier 2, you're actually sort of arguing against the machine, saying, no, I want to move. Um, (laughs) The thing I don't know whether it comes across in True Lies, and you covered it with Mugwar, is you've only got 90 seconds of water. So the ability to land and take off vertically is actually sort of quite time-constrained. 
Yeah. And then uh, to your earlier statement about hearing check, I think you said, but yeah, I understand if you're hovering even at the top of a skyscraper, you're going to be putting out quite a bit of power. So probably being with a canopy open and and all that's going to be a bit loud, but we can't sit here and try to justify the truth of everything else that happens in that movie. So, you know, it's entertaining. Quite so. Awesome. Well, golly, Paul, this is uh, crazy. What are you doing now? Are you out? Are you still in? I left. The Royal Navy is mainly about ships, and I detected that it was time to go. And what I wanted to do, I know it sounds a little bit trite, I wanted to leave while all those memories were still fresh. I wasn't bitter. I didn't feel like the promotion boards hadn't gone my way or anything like that. So I ducked out about three years ago and now just work for a defense company in uh, essentially sales. Okay. And you mentioned it, and I'll be honest, this is something I'm not fully aware of, although I've seen some news that there's a Marine F-35B squadron going out on a carrier, but are you still just ski ramps at this point? And I apologize if that's an awful way to summarize it, but are you getting back into the Nimitz-ish class type of carrier or what's out there these well, days? Size-wise, yes. The size of the new two carriers is a lot, lot bigger than the Invincible class that I was used to. And I've been on board them, Jello, and you know what? They look and feel like an aircraft carrier should. They are awesome bits of real estate. But you are right. We are F-35B model customers. Yes, there is still a ramp. And this year's deployment that they're doing, it's a bit quirky because the F-35 force in the UK is a Royal Air Force, Royal Navy joint force. Royal Navy crew the boat, the joint force supply that significant part of the air group. And then the U.S. Marine Corps are coming as well. So yes, size-wise, comparable-ish to Nimitz class, so Stovall. But it, from what it sounds like, the boys and girls doing a fabulous job of integrating that new machine into the, the wider capability. Well, what's the name of the ship they're on? Is it the... HMS Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth. I almost said Queen Mary, and I knew that wasn't right. Queen Elizabeth. The most important thing, Paul, and I say this with an absolute serious face, is if you've got U.S. Marines on a British ship, by God, I hope they close the bar. <laughs> i've deployed with some marine squadrons that's got to be a hoot if those guys are going down and doing mid rats with that (laughs) you know and and we talked about it earlier but my friends and i on the, the air group we used to talk about whether or not you could have a bar on a u.s navy ship and i said you probably could but you might want to forget about being a superpower for about a month and a half when you got to grips with it <laughs> yeah i think that's probably right well i won't say there was never alcohol on uh, navy carriers but uh, again they had some experience early in their history and that was the end of that so are they already deployed or are they still working up what are they doing do you know on the uh, they worked up pre-christmas they're going soon it's it's quite a long deployment but i don't think they've actually sailed just yet all right i'm sure there'll be some good lessons learned from that one awesome paul well golly what else is there this has been pretty amazing I think that the one thing we haven't touched on is the ops in Afghanistan, which we can if you like. Sure. That's quite interesting because that was, you guys did a really, really good job of pushing Hornets up the boulevard once or twice a day, which was always the time where we, if we were on ground alert in Kandahar, used to take off our anti-G trousers and hang them up because you know what, no one's going to scramble you when the sky's black with Hornets over over Sangin. But uh, really quite an interesting sort of position to be in for someone who trained for a career to be a maritime strike fighter to find yourself in the middle of the desert. But uh, fascinating that you guys made it work from the sea. Yeah, and I regret that I never had a chance to do that, just the poor timing of my deployments. But I was on the ground up there. Let's see if we missed each other again. I was on the ground in Bagram and then in the city of Kabul a little bit from the fall of 11 to spring of 12. So probably missed you if you were getting ready to go to the States. Yeah, just before then. So uh, 08, 09 would be the last time I was there. And I'll be honest, the nearest I got to Bagram was uh, basically getting into hellacious 
fuel calculations working on how I could keep my diversion fuel in a sandstorm and not go to Bagram, essentially. <laughs> yeah, I can see that could be important. I don't know how much you're willing to share, uh, but did you get a chance to get kinetic? Yeah, yeah. And that was obviously part of the job. And there are certain communities worldwide that hold the CAS role very dear. But I think I can speak for most fixed-wing aviators when I say we hold the role pretty dear because you're actually talking to someone who needs your help. The Harrier Force was over there for five years. We went over into Kandahar when probably only the Harrier could operate from there. We continued to do so for those five years. We actually really enjoyed, in a way, uh, take this in the way it's meant, whenever there were a, an issue on the runway, predators seemed to crash a couple of times or maybe rocket attacks and whatnot. That would mean that there were very limited surfaces available. We take great delight on belling up on the chat that the Harriers could still make it off and that the F-16s could follow us when they'd swept up, that sort of thing. That was good. But we got up quite a few modifications to the aeroplanes over there. And we started off when I first went, we were flying pairs. One jet would take a couple of thousand pounders. The other guy would take 540 free-fall weapons and rockets. And that between the formation was a good mix. You could attempt to help in most ways with that. And then we latterly got the what we call the Paveway 4. It's, a, I think, a GPU 49 equivalent type, so laser and, and GPS guided. And that was a bit better for us, you know, because the, the troops were quite twitched about 1,000-pounders flying around. <laughs> so to have a 500-pound class weapon available was yeah. good. We got into uh, enough scrapes out there. And I think the proof of the pudding is you like to think that you're doing a good service on, for the guys on the ground. Ultimately. And that's actually one of the things I enjoy about this podcast is, you know, social media and Hollywood stereotypes, fighter pilots is, you know, big bravado, chest thumping. It's all about me. And of course, Top Gun is kind of the movie, I should say, is based on that between Iceman and Maverick. But I've had so many people come on the show and say, you know, it's all about the 18 year old with the rifle because we're supporting arms to them. And when you did that in Afghanistan, was it folks on the ground or whoever needed your help? It was whoever. And there were Occasionally, we had to be clear with certain nations that, hey, we're here to help, but we've got to follow our own ROE, that we're in no way restrictive. We just needed to make sure that the right things went on the tape. But everyone in the coalition was free to bid for us, as it were, and or we just got sorted out by the chaos, just like anyone else would. It would be perfectly normal for us to get airborne, maybe go and do a reconnaissance task up in the West or the Central Highlands, then go and support any nation go to the tanker, and that's where you'd see Hornets, Mirages. I once, luckily, a B-1B got out of the way for me because I could have been there for hours waiting for that thing to tank. And then you'd go and support a different nation. So yeah, it was all sorts of folk, but yeah. uh, not specifically the Brits. Well, there's another question I can ask the differences or similarities. How about tanking between the Harrier and the Super Hornet? The joy of the Super Hornet is that the probe's just above your right knee, isn't it? Whereas with the uh, Harrier, it's behind your left ear. So um, the... <laughs> That does, in the Super Hornet, occasionally give you the bad habit of like lunging for the basket rather than a slow and steady approach. But in the Harry, re realistically, I think it was the airspeed. The airspeed indicator was top left in the head-up display. And if you put that on where the hose exited the, the drogue unit and just drove in nine times out of 10 plus, the hose would go slack. You'd feel a thunk and you were in. So, so, so long as you were disciplined, it, it was fairly straightforward. Well, and that's probably as good a summary for anything we do in fighter aviation as discipline, right? Yeah. Kandahar, so sitting here thinking about the geography, is that where the uh, Marine Harriers were also, or were they some... Kandahar's down south? Kandahar's uh, in Helmand province. The Marine yeah. Harriers were just north of the runway, 
And you know what? They helped us out occasionally. I know we went and begged a couple of spares off them on a couple of occasions. So they, okay. they were brilliant. And is that where the attack was, where a handful of American Harriers and uh, the skipper and a, and a Marine were killed? No, sadly, they had gone out towards Camp Bastion, which was uh, 70, right. 80 miles out to the west. Um, it was actually joined on to the uh, Camp Leatherneck, and that's where that attack took place. Really sad, really, Jello. You know, obviously a tragedy for the two guys that lost their lives, uh, less so the machines, but that base was put out there so that it couldn't attract any indirect fire. You know, it, it was miles from anywhere. So it was only that sort of internal attack was ever going to work. And, and sadly, the enemy did make it work against that squadron. That's their MO. Not surprising, I guess. But yeah, you're right about that. It's one of those situations or attacks that I've heard a little bit about, but not ever learned enough about to really uh, sink in. And I always forget who and where and when. But as I recall, it was the commanding officer who led the way, as you would expect a Marine to do. And uh, one of his uh, enlisted folks who also perished. As I remember, I think the most Marine aircraft to be lost since World War II in, in one battle, if you will. So really a tragic event. Anyway, uh, let's see, on happier news, what else, Paul? I mean, this is fun, but I don't want to keep you all day. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Just going back to what we just talked about previously, on the occasions where you were going kinetic, and particularly when people were deep in the shtuk, I mean, one of the, the times I'll recall was with US Special Ops Forces, etc. The nationality doesn't really matter. Well, it doesn't matter at all, obviously. But the great thing as well about the team effort that was Kandahar was that the guys who used to go out on the ground to clear the um, approach paths for aircraft ops were Australian, Estonian. I remember one um, rocket attack jello where sadly a bunch of guys died. They were from Bulgaria. I had absolutely no idea the Bulgarians even had troops in theatre. It did feel like you were part of a, a sort of great undertaking. No doubt. All right, Paul. So I just want to summarize before I let you go. So easiest to hardest was, let's see, day Harrier landing, night Super Hornet landing, night Harrier landing, and then day Super Hornet landing? (laughs) (laughs) Not quite. Easiest, day V-stall. Second easiest, next hardest, night Cat and Trap. Hardest of the lot was uh, night V-stall, which only leaves uh, day Cat and Trap as the second hardest. Okay. Like I say, I might take some issue with that, but of course I didn't have the uh, V-Stall experience that you did. So I'll have to take your word for it. Awesome, Paul. Well, <laughs> you're a lot of fun. And uh, next time you make it to the States, if you're ever in San Diego, look me up so we can have a, uh, a pint together. That'd be great, Jello. Thank you very much indeed for making the time. Oh, you're welcome. It's good to have you. And uh, we're going to count you as a friend of the show from now on. If we have a question on the differences between the Brits and the Americans or Beast All and Super Hornet type stuff, we'll be sure to look you up. That'd be great. Take care. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.